Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is... Foreign aid. This is in the Daily Mail. Proof that foreign aid doesn't work. Scathing report reveals £11 million scheme backed by Bono failed to reduce poverty or hunger. As I drove through villages in northern Ghana, bumping along pitted dirt roads and passing mud-splattered men pushing bicycles, the grinding poverty was painfully obvious. Exhausted farmers, some wearing faded football shirts, sprawled in the shade beside mud-built houses. Women chopped leaves for dinner and surrounded by children in tatty clothes. Goats and guinea fowls scavenged among rubbish. In one village after another, people told of their daily fight for survival. Farmers said they couldn't afford fertilizer. Mothers couldn't afford medicine for their children. Pupils couldn't afford pencils. I heard similar stories of hardship six years ago when I last visited the Savannah region. In terms of our poverty, there have been no changes, said Saul Mentable, as he planted beans beside the river. I first met Saul, the father of four, in 2012 when I told him his village of Nabari had been chosen for a British aid project designed to prove that big cash injections could transform such deprived rural communities. We don't believe it will work, he said then. And he was right to be sceptical because now we have the scathing verdict of a five-year study into this project funded by British taxpayers, which lavished £11 million, £2,906 per household, on 35 impoverished villages in Ghana. And the landmark 182-page report for the Department for International Development has serious implications for the entire aid sector and a government that insists on donating billions to hit its discredited target of 0.7% of gross national income. The Millennium Villages Project began in 2005 to show that chucking cash at some of the planet's poorest places could end extreme poverty, foster diversification from farming, and spark sustainable development in just five years. It was created by Professor Jeffrey Sachs, dubbed a rock star economist from Columbia University in New York, backed by the UN and billionaire philanthropists, and promoted by celebrities such as U2 frontman Bonham. It's interesting, isn't it? Wherever Bonham goes, there's some element of the elite's agenda involved. He's like Bill Gates. He's everywhere. Foreign aid from the West, taking action on human-caused climate change, which is a massive scam to justify transformation of society in the image of the elite's agenda to a very large extent. I talk about human-caused climate change in episodes 18 and 29. He's been photographed being friendly with war criminals like Tony Blair and younger George Bush in the past. Yeah, that's Bono for you. The article goes on. But the DFID report concludes the project failed to meet many key aims and targets, saying far from breaking the poverty trap, the project does not appear to have reduced poverty or hunger at all, adding that it had fallen short of producing a synergistic effect. The authors admit to surprise that the project did not improve some of the outcomes explicitly targeted by the intervention, such as child mortality, immunisation rates, antenatal care, access to drinking water and usage in mobile phones. They also criticise misguided efforts to attract more girls than boys to school and suggest preferential help for some schools drained others of good teachers, yet the project did not improve children's cognitive skills. The evaluation commissioned by DFID to test the theories and agreed with Professor Sachs found little difference between villages directed in British aid and others in the region that were not helped. Although attendance improved at new clinics and schools, incomes rose, probably temporarily according to the report, and there was a fall in the impaired growth of children what has been achieved could have been attained at substantially lower cost, it says. The report also discloses the dismal yet all too typical fact that nearly a third of funds went on management and overheads while admitting there was large-scale fraud involving a key local partner. There is savage irony that far from proving the success of foreign aid, this project announced by Sachs and Bono on a visit early in 2012 was ended up highlighting core problems. 
For a start, there is the dependency culture. Inevitably, there were improvements when villages were flooded with cash for new schools, extra teachers and street lights. Tractors were lent to farmers and women were given inducements to give birth in clinics. But this was not enough to spark sustainable transformation in poor societies. So in Kapisegpe, where Sachs made impassioned promises six years ago to hundreds of villagers, I heard desperate pleas for more foreign assistance now that the project has ended. Niaba Al-Hassan, a farmer and father of ten children, told me, It was better when you were helping, but now we are poor again. The investigation noted a pervasive expectation for donors to fix problems and that one village adopted a more community-led approach to construction only when funds became limited. But just as in Britain, I found profound cynicism over the aid industry. Lots of white people and NGOs came and made lots of promises but they have not been fulfilled, said Michael Dayuri, a farmer in the village of Suriba. They came and asked us questions about our families, our lives and our farming. They never come back. The next year someone else comes back. They just tick their boxes after listening to our problems. They are using us to earn their money, he says. Michael, 31, father of one, added they changed the environment but nothing else. They promised they would change our lives and our property but nothing changed. Then there were claims of corruption. In several villages, desperately poor farmers said they were given fertilizer supposed to be free or bought with cheap loans if they handed over hefty amounts of their harvested maize, corn, in other words, or rice to local officials. One farmer, who earned £160 in a good year, told me he had to hand over one bag of maize in the project's first year, then three of the nine bags grown the next year. Another said they were forced to hand over food even when crops failed. There were also complaints of blundering outsiders ignoring locals. In Nabari, for instance, the project left five concrete scars with capped pipes sticking out from the fertile red ground, the legacy of failed efforts to drill boreholes for water. Just on that point, there is a charity, I should mention, called the Thirst Project, which goes to developing countries to drill for water because they say they know the water's there, but they need to build wells and actually get to the water under the ground and they seem to have at least some success so I would recommend looking at the Thirst Project anywhere the article goes on. They came with their equipment saying they would find water to help us farm better said villagers Sumani Gimir but they did not listen to the villagers so they did not succeed. We still depend on old supplies so when it's dry there is not enough water. In another village the MVP worker succeeded in drilling a borehole but it broke after a year. The residents clubbed together to spend £60 on repairs but it broke down again so children are now missing school to fetch water from a river. At many villages there were complaints there were no attempts to create jobs with the aid money. Head teacher Abdullah Shafu told me that during the rebuilding of his school in June by contractors, locals were used only to carry water and build blocks rather than learn new skills. Since the solar power system broke down after a year, there is now an empty room that once held seven donated computers. There was another filled with broken furniture so many pupils must sit on the floor. Gradually the desks are falling apart and we can't pay to rebuild them, said Shafu who has a master's degree in development and has spent a decade teaching in the village. You must put local people at the centre of activities, he says. His school has lost five teachers since the MVP scheme ended last year, leaving six others to hold lessons for up to 200 pupils at a time. I watched Achiri Kwaku energetically teaching maths to a crammed classroom with many pupils sitting on the floor. Look at the children, he said. They need desks but cannot even afford pencils sometimes. It is very difficult to teach so many of them. Outside the classroom, the sad sight of a broken swing in the playground, surrounded by collapsed wire fencing, seemed to symbolise this scheme's apparent failure to create enduring change. Health clinics have seen sharp falls in attendance and often run out of drugs. If the situation stays like this, our clinic will close since there is no money, said one nurse. These schools and clinics are emblazoned with inscriptions about British funding, yet for all the fine intentions they show the futility of attempts to impose lasting development in poor places with sudden flows of funds from abroad. 
Michael Clemens, a senior fellow at the think tank, the Center for Global Development, praised DFID for its investigation of such a high profile scheme. He said it proved the project had not achieved its self-declared aims of assisting poor parts of rural Africa to lift themselves out of poverty in five years. The project failed to do that, full stop, he said. Clemens argues that development cannot be imposed by outsiders and he believes the cause is higher by diverting scarce resources into flashy one-off quick-fix projects that promise to solve everything in a few years. He said if this new evaluation ultimately diverts resources away from such projects and towards longer-term African-led partnerships, then DFID's support for it would have done a great deal of good. A DFID spokesman insisted its programme helped reduce poverty but admitted it did not meet its aim of achieving Millennium Goals a UN initiative to combat poverty, hunger, disease, illiteracy, environmental degradation, and discrimination against women. That's Agenda 2030, which I've talked about in episode 36. And it's very much the opposite of what it appears to be. Anyway, the article goes on. He said, this is Clemens, DFID stands by its decision to fund the project, but accepts the robust independent evaluation which concluded it should not be scaled up. Sachs remains unbound, pointing to a recent article in the Lancet he co-authored for independent analysis, insisting the new report's cost-effectiveness observations were a joke and saying that the authors had never built schools and clinics themselves. He added, the report does make clear that there were several significant gains in well-being. The claim about poverty not declining is simply wrong and strange. Incomes rose statistically, as clearly noted in the report, and multidimensional poverty fell. Sachs claimed he told DFID that five years was not enough time to realise all the Millennium Development Goals and added that there were many notable advances in the MVP and other projects across Africa. To say the project failed would be deliberately misrepresenting the truth, he said. Certainly, debate over sending torrents of Western cash to spur progress in poorer parts of the world will continue, but there's no doubt this highly significant report was dealt with the cause and leading figures in the aid will be a severe blow. Perhaps Sachs and his friends should stop sermonising and head back to Ghana, for not one of the people I met in these villages said their prosperity had advanced with these giant dollops of British aid, despite their gratitude for new clinics and schools. Indeed, it is hard not to wonder if these African villagers have a better understanding of their own development issues than all those Westminster politicians blowing billions on neo-colonial policies egged on by sanctified professors and rock stars. For as that dedicated head teacher struggling to sustain his school in Jew told me, you must put local communities at the centre of development to create lasting progress. It is not just about money, he said wisely. No, it's not. Foreign aid should really be called tyranny aid, because much of foreign aid is spent on tyrannies like Saudi Arabia and Israel. This is the same moral West whose political leaders feign outrage at terrorist atrocities and then sell weaponry to Saudi Arabia and Israel. Moral outrage for hire, I call it. Foreign aid also contributes to the advancement of the Hunger Games Society, I talk about in episode four, by the financial burden placed on a population from taxation. A population who have no choice about where the money goes or how much of it. We're talking hundreds of millions of pounds in total spent on foreign aid. And in this country, here in Britain, here's a few things foreign aid is spent on. Here's two articles. The first one's in the Express. This is from November the 17th, 2017. Foreign aid madness. Billions handed to EU helping fund yoga, juggling and coconut growth. Due to legislation introduced by former Prime Minister David Cameron, 0.7% of UK economic output must be spent on aid. Of the 13.4 billion aid total in 2016, 1.5 billion pounds went to Brussels to support European Commission aid programmes. The EU used the cash to help fund juggling and trapeze lessons in Tanzania, and £120,000 went on improving coconut farming in the Caribbean. Coconut, well I guess that might have a use, coconut farming. I guess some good could come of that. 
worthwhile. Article goes on. John O'Donnell of the Taxpayers Alliance said the aid budget needs a serious overhaul so it's based on helping those actually in need. Some £93 million went to India despite the country launching its own space programme. The next article I read after this one will be on that subject. The Department for International Development spent £86,616 of cash for yoga-based cardiac rehabilitation in India. Well, if it works, I guess there's a use for it, but I'm sure there's other things they could have spent that money on to achieve the same end. It would have been more effective, possibly. The article goes on. Conservative MP Jacob Rees-Mogg said spending money to teach yoga in India is like spending money to teach Catholicism to the Holy Father. The article goes on. Nearly £42 million was spent on projects in China despite it being the world's second largest economy. The UK helped fund dementia care in the Chinese province of Qingdao. Well, that's useful, I guess, but as it says here, China is the world's second largest economy, so why does it need foreign aid? Why can't they fund that themselves? The government also spent money supporting the Iraqi National Symphony Orchestra, strengthening ties with Iran and conserving eels in the Philippines. Well, the West wants a conflict with Iran, in truth. Conservative MP for Stone, Bill Cash, said the aid budget has to be reviewed, but the DFID insisted the aid budget increases Britain's global influence in saving lives. Well, how? Not according to the previous article I just read, is not. The new secretary, Penny Mordaunt, said this week she believed foreign aid has the power to end disease, hunger and extreme poverty. Well, it don't look like it. A spokesman for the department last night insisted the programme was run by the Medical Research Council and the government was not directly funding the yoga lessons. The DFID spends 75% of the £13 billion budget with the Foreign Office responsible for much of the cash allocated to projects in China. But DFID insiders blame the Foreign Office and other government departments for the waste. The details come just weeks after the UK was told aid could not be spent on British overseas territories affected by Hurricane Irma because they are too wealthy. It also comes just before the autumn budget in which people are expecting tax rises. The Resolution Foundation, a think tank, believes due to the rate of inflation being higher than forecast, the basic rate commitment will be achieved in April 2021 and the higher rate in April 2022. This means the threshold could be frozen in 2022. As well as a further 30 million people paying more tax, hundreds of thousands will be dragged into higher tax brackets. And that, on one level, is what it's about. Here's the second article I mentioned. This is from Sky News. Fury over UK's unjustifiable £98 million foreign aid injection for India. The UK is to hand over £98 million to India, despite the country, which has spent almost the same on a lunar probe, now giving out more foreign aid than it receives. As part of the UK's aid budget, the Department for International Development will give £52 million this year and a further £46 million in 2019 to 2020. It comes despite India spending £95.4 million on the lunar probe Chandrayaan 2, which is set to launch in January. This was published in September this year, actually. Meanwhile, India gives away more in foreign aid than it receives. In 2015-2016, it took in £254 million but gave away £912 million. Tory MP David Davis said India did not want or need UK aid and that in effect we are sponsoring an Indian moon launch. Another Tory MP, Philip Davis, told the Daily Express, here we are spending money in a country that has not only got its own space programme but is developing its own overseas aid programme. To be honest, the government needs looking at if it thinks that is an appropriate way of spending taxpayers' money. It needs to get out of Whitehall and appreciate the public is not just sick and tired of this but angry too. It is completely unjustifiable and truly idiotic. 
There is no suggestion that India, reportedly home to 213 million people who live in poverty, will use aid from the UK directly for its space programme. The Chandrayaan-2 orbiter, which has also sent a probe to the moon in 2008, will look to land a rover again and collect data from the start of next year. In 2013, India launched an orbiter to Mars, which is still in operation. DFID told the Daily Express traditional aid to India had ended and that it was now working to deliver joint economic development priorities. It also said the money sent to India would help stimulate prosperity, generate jobs, develop skills and open up new markets for both countries. The thing about foreign aid is it's exploiting on both ends because you've got taxpayers in Britain, America, other countries. Because you've got taxpayers like in Britain and America being taxed and not having a say on how much of their tax is spent on foreign aid and where it goes, if any at all. And you've got genuine underdeveloped countries and people in those countries being exploited when foreign aid is wasted or when it's sent to tyrannies like Saudi Arabia and Israel. And I'm not saying all foreign aid is like this. I don't know that. I don't know that it is. I don't know that it's not. But certainly some of it is not about helping populations rebuilding infrastructure or developing countries, which is what it should be about entirely. I'd be in support of it if it was purely about that, if it was going to countries that need it. But that's not what it's about at all. It's about funding tyrannies and wasting taxpayers' money, at least to an extent. That's what it's about. And creating increased potential for financial problems for the population of the country sending the foreign aid. It's a racket exploiting genuine suffering in underdeveloped countries for political policy on one level and also wasting money, contributing to the creation of the Hunger Games Society in the country sending the money and using the population's money to do it. And the next subject this week is Him Too. You've heard of Me Too. This is Him Too. This is in the Daily Mail. Him Too movement gains momentum post Kavanaugh saga as mother posts viral tweet claiming her son was scared to go on dates because of feminists with an axe to grind. The notion that it is dangerous to be an American man in the Me Too era took off during the angry debate over Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. But tossing more fuel onto the fire were a sarcastic tirade from Donald Trump and a painfully awkward tweet from his seemingly overactious mother. On the day Kavanaugh was sworn in as the junior justice to the High Court, Pieter Hansen's mother posted a message on the social media network comparing the plight of the jurist who had vigorously denied allegations of sexual aggression to the dating challenges facing a 32-year-old son. Under the hashtag HimToo, she said her son was refusing to go on solo dates due to the current climate of false sexual accusations by radical feminists with an axe to grind. To emphasise her point, she posted a photo of the good-looking young man, an angelic smile on his face posing in his crisp white navy uniform. The post immediately went viral, inspiring hundreds of mocking memes, most of them having fun with the seemingly overall concerns of Pieter Hansen's hovering mother. The young man, now a Navy veteran, responded by quickly posting a new photo of himself in the same pose as the first one, but in t-shirt and jeans, to gently take exception with his mother. Sometimes the people we love do things that hurt us without realising it, he tweeted. I respect and believe women I never have and never will support him too. In a series of subsequent TV appearances, Hansen, joined by his brother John, made good-natured sport of the whole matter. The US president himself took up the same theme earlier this month before reporters at the White House. It's a very scary time for young men in America where you can be guilty of something that you may not be guilty of, said Trump, himself the target of multiple allegations of sexual aggression, which he has denied. Then, a few days later, 
Trump mercilessly mocked Kavanaugh's accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, during one of his big political rallies. Pretending to be Blasey Ford, he sneered at her lapses in memory over the alleged aggression dating from the 1980s, drawing uproarious laughter from supporters. Peter Hansen's mother didn't invent the Himju hashtag, which gained steam during the bitter debate between Blasey Ford supporters and those who see Kavanaugh as a postal boy for men falsely accused of sexual misconduct. Men perceived that if women gain, men lose, Clara Wilkins, a social psychologist at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, told AFP, Associated Foreign Press. She said research shows that men think they are experiencing bias now more than they have ever before. The fact that Trump said this guy Kavanaugh has been unfairly accused is increasing men's belief that men are victimised, Wilkins said. The article goes on. Men's fears have a rational bias, insisted attorney Andrew Miltenberg, who told AFP he has defended hundreds of young men from allegations of sexual abuse, most of them arising in university settings. In most cases, not all women are seeking revenge on ex-boyfriends or young men they found to have played around too much, he said, adding that it's very difficult for young men to get a fair opportunity to be heard. It's a very frightening time for men, Milton Burke continued. I don't really believe you can be alone in a room with a young woman now in this climate, at a time when such allegations can destroy a man's life and career. A Justice Department study, however, found that such false accusations are rare, comprising no more than 2 to 10% of all complaints. Moreover, one rape victim in 10 is a man, and an estimated 3% of Americans have been raped or sexually attacked. Victims' rights groups thus stress that American men are at around the same risk of being the victim of sexual aggression as of being falsely accused, meaning the MeToo hashtag would apply to many more than him too. Well, I've talked about hashtag MeToo before in episode 27, and why they are, in my opinion, virtue signalling, headline grabbing, camera seeking, frauds. I'm all for equality between the sexes, right across the board, for as long as men and women still exist, by the way, with all the constant propaganda and indeed the agenda for all the various gender types that are being invented now, LGBTQ+, and all the other letters, and transgender, etc. The agenda is to get rid of gender and for humans you can call them that, to be created in laboratories synthetically and also to be part technological, as I've said before. I agree with the quality right across the board for men and women, but I have to say, I've been seeing for a while, and increasingly so now, women seeking to take over. Not every woman, but some of them. And it's like this reverse racism that we see, where black people, for instance, might hold a black people-only event, no other race allowed, when if white people did that, There'd be condemnation from all quarters. I saw a phrase which said, you don't end racism by reversing it. And that's absolutely right. I'm all for women taking back equality where it's not present. However, it seems to me that what we're looking at is some women seeking to go beyond equality and seeking to dominate in the way that men tried to dominate in the past and do dominate in places like Saudi Arabia, Morocco and other countries. Again, you don't end inequality by reversing it. In fact, there's no such thing as reverse racism or reverse inequality. It's racism and inequality, let's call it what it is. Just because black people might be seeking to hold a blacks-only event doesn't make it any less racism just because black people were disgracefully treated in the past, not least in America. And likewise, women seeking to dominate doesn't make it any less of an inequality just because women have been oppressed in the past. It's still racism and inequality at any time and in any expression. What we're seeing now is constant points of division between groups in society. You've got division between men and women because of allegations of sexual harassment, many of which will be only allegations. You've got divisions between transgender and feminists. 
you've got divisions between races, not least due to migration, and also the actions of migrants not being dealt with by authorities in the way they should be, including migrant grooming gangs, which I talk about in episode 27, because of those in law enforcement and authority being scared to take action for fear of being called racist, thanks to political correctness, as I explain in episode 27. I wonder if that might stir up racial tension. Everywhere you look now, there's increasing friction and division, and that's perfect for divide and rule. We're seeing the effect more and more of groupthink, where people think as a group rather than as individuals and see everyone else as part of a group and therefore judge everyone by their group identity. Identity politics, that's what we're looking at, and it's very short-sighted and narrow-minded because in any group, you'll have a variety of personalities. It depends on the individual. Not all white men are the same, and equally, not all transgender people or migrants are the same. In a mature society, people are judged on the basis of their own personality, their own views and their own actions, which will be different for each person, instead of being judged by which identity group they belong to, because everybody's different. A point that needs making, very crucial point, especially in relation to this story. I've not researched the Kavanaugh story, so I can't talk about it. I'm aware, basically, what happened, but I'd need to research it first. But taking an overview of what we're looking at with allegations against people, whether it's sexual allegations or racial allegations or allegations of not respecting gender or whatever the allegation is, we live increasingly in a post-fact society where facts don't matter as much as the group making the claim. I'll explain more about what I mean by that in episode 27. When facts don't matter, you're in a tyranny, and that's where we're going with political correctness. I explain in episode 27, and this is my own view for what it's worth, because I've come to my own conclusion rather than just thinking as part of a group think hive mind, which is what we're seeing happening more and more, people thinking as part of a group rather than individually. I explain why I say that political correctness is the ultimate discrimination. We're seeing the mob, the PC mob of whichever identity group, whether it be the transgender lobby or radical feminists, to use a phrase used in this article, or whichever group, overriding the need for fact-based justice in favour of group-based justice, identity politics justice. This is tyranny and it needs calling out. Justice must be blind to all identity variables and it must judge situations on their merit. The basic right of innocent until proven guilty is being eroded. What we're seeing is a reverse of that. We're seeing guilty until proven innocent. Not just in courtrooms but in general accusations. Whether it's on Twitter or whatever. Someone makes an accusation and the accused is then seen as guilty and has to prove they're not when the burden of proof should be on those making the accusation. They have to prove that their accusation is true. That's the way it should be. And it's ludicrous that it's increasingly the other way around. But we're seeing it more and more, and it needs to be called out because a basic tenet of a free society, along with the absolutely fundamental foundation freedom of freedom of speech and expression, is innocent until proven guilty and it must be upheld if freedom is to be upheld. And the next subject this week is... 
online abuse. This is an interesting one. This is in the Independent. Online trolls should be given digital asbos for abusing MPs, report says. Online trolls who abuse politicians should be given digital asbos temporarily banning them from using social media, the government has been told. A new report by the think tank Webroots Democracy, published in Parliament this week, will outline measures to turn the tide against the sewer of hate speech and abusive content found online. One suggestion is for online antisocial behaviour orders where people who persistently abuse politicians will be banned from Twitter or Facebook for a short period and added to an online abuser register. MPs from all parties have complained about receiving death threats and racist and misogynistic slurs prompting Theresa May to promise action to curb the streams of abuse aimed at political figures. Ministers are considering banning trolls from standing for public office, but the think tank said tougher sanctions were needed to get a grip on the spread of online abuse. Chief Executive Ari Chowdhury told The Independent, Despite all of the talk, research and media coverage about online abuse, we've seen no significant action in tackling it. Whilst social media has great potential to be a hub of political conversation, the reality is that it is fast becoming a sewer of hate speech and abusive content. The article goes on. Some users are self-censoring to avoid abuse, while others told Webroots researchers that the messages they received have driven them to suicidal despair. Mr Chowdhury said, if we are to be serious about tackling this problem, we need to start thinking of ideas that focus on sanctions, education and reform. Our proposed extension of antisocial behaviour orders to cover online behaviour and for them to have online sanctions is one such idea that we urge the government to consider. The article goes on. Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott received half of all abusive tweets sent to female MPs during the run-up to the election, according to research that tracked more than 25,000 tweets sent to parliamentarians. Well, one reason Diane Abbott may have got such abuse is because she's bloody useless. And to think that she's Shadow Home Secretary just shows you how much of a farce politics is. The Tory Brexit rebels have also faced abuse such as prominent backbencher Anna Soubry who received death threats for defying the government. SNP MP Hannah Bardell who is back in the report, that's the Scottish National Party in Britain. Hannah Bardell has spoken about the extensive homophobic abuse she has received online. She says, I have a number of concerns about abuse on social media, particularly for those in the public eye or indeed performing a public service. Of course, as politicians, we should be critiqued on our performance and criticism is a normal part of the role. However, abuse is unacceptable. Abuse of MPs is nothing new, but before the advent of social media, the abuse would be sent in the mail, which could be contained and kept private now that abuse is out there for all to see. This could easily put anyone off from entering politics, perhaps even more so women, people of colour, members of the LGBT community or the disabled who are underrepresented in Parliament. Well, that's the point, because we keep hearing about this minority group is underrepresented or that minority group is underrepresented. Why should there be people of a certain minority group just so that there's people of a certain minority group in a certain position? What about the best people for the job, choosing people on the merit of the, their ability, rather than their having to be someone of a certain colour or a certain minority just so there's someone there of that colour or minority? The article goes on. The government is currently consulting on plans for a new offence to target those convicted of threatening or abusive behaviour, either in person or online, towards prospective MPs or campaigners working for them, closing a loophole in legislation. Many stores will also consider beefing up measures to tackle fake news by forcing digital communications to carry an imprint showing who is responsible in line with campaign materials rules. In other words, a imprint saying who's deemed trustworthy and not trustworthy in the eyes of the state the establishment. 
and anyone challenging the official narrative will obviously be deemed to be fake news or untrustworthy. On Facebook already there's a message that pops up with certain articles telling you the source of the information. That's where that's going. Telling you about the source of the information. That's where that's going. What this is really is an excuse to remove more freedom of speech is the war on freedom of speech and freedom of expression, the most fundamental human right, continues. It's not ultimately about politicians being abused, that's just the excuse. It's about removing more freedom of speech. This is an example of how the phrase hate speech was created as a means of censorship. It's not about targeting genuine abuse ultimately, it's about using hate speech as the excuse. I'm more for genuine hate and abuse being dealt with in the necessary way, but there are already laws against abuse like racism laws, for example, so we don't need any more measures to deal with it. This is just a foot in the door. It's exploiting genuine abuse for a political agenda. The idea is to expand and from abuse of politicians to abuse of this group and that group and this other group until only the official narrative remains, because that's the idea behind this war on freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Politicians are in a job where criticism, and in some cases abuse, is an occupational hazard. That doesn't make the abuse justified, but you have to expect to face strong opinions when you're a politician, making decisions that affect people's lives. And the question might be asked, why the abuse? Is the abuse coming from a place of frustration and resentment towards political figures because of the way they or their parties are causing problems for the people abusing them? Is it because of a feeling of lack of representation? Is it because they want to make their feelings known at the way their lives are being affected? Because if the answer to any one or more of those questions for some of the abuse or what's being called abuse is yes, then you can understand why people would do that. Again, it doesn't make the abuse justified, but there's a difference between abusing someone for the sake of it and doing it out of frustration, especially when that person is making decisions affecting the country you live in and making decisions affecting your life. They're in the job to make decisions affecting the country and they're supposed to be able to stand by their decisions knowing they'll get criticism from some people. If abuse online is too much for them, then maybe they shouldn't be a politician in the first place. In fact, some of them definitely shouldn't be a politician in the first place, not least Diane Abbott. This frustration from the people has this frustration from the people has expressed itself in the form of what are known as populist parties, where parties and party leaders are coming to power or appearing in politics that are representing, or at least people feel they're representing the people more and are willing to address the concerns people have and have had for so long, not least in response to migration. This is why populism is popular in Europe in places like Hungary with Viktor Orban and Sweden and Lofven in Sweden has just received a no-confidence vote because of the way he has refused to take the action necessary and that is so desperately needed in Sweden on migration and he's allowed Sweden to become a nightmare because of it. As society is changing in line with the elite's agenda for the world, which I've been outlining since pay-per-view began, people are more and more uneasy about the world as it's changing around them. And so they look to political figures they feel will represent them. And this is where populism came from. Ultimately, populism being a political movement won't change everything, but it seems there are political figures coming to power, at least from what they say anyway, who want to address some of the concerns people have. And we'll have to watch closely to see whether at least some of these concerns really are addressed or whether it's just more words with no real action. Great rule of thumb with politics. Forget the words, watch the actions, because anyone can list changes they're going to make. It's another thing to actually make those changes. The way politics works 
it's a stitch up anyway because whatever changes are enacted another party could come to power in the next election or so and reverse the changes so politics is never going to change anything really but what's encouraging about populism is that people are at the point now especially in Europe and America because Donald Trump was voted into power because many people believe he's going to make America great again he won't but that's what people believe so what's encouraging about populism is that people are seeing now that politics does not represent them and they're seeing how useless politics is the next point of understanding is why that's the case and that's because there's an elite running the world beyond government beyond the intelligence networks who are ultimately deciding the direction of the world and moving it through the structure they have in place in line with their agenda but at least people are starting to see that politics does not represent them and that's an important first step and the final subject this week is children in school this is in the daily mail mental health checks for pupils teachers to assess children as young as four as britain appoints world's first minister for suicide prevention pupils are to be given routine mental health checks theresa may said tonight primary and secondary schools will carry out well-being assessments to spot potential issues mental health problems among the young have increased sixfold over the past two decades and one in ten children now has a diagnosable condition Girls are most at risk with self-harming reported among a fifth of those aged 14. A fifth. Mrs May said half of all mental health problems rise by the age of 14, yet only one in three get the right treatment. The new checks are part of a £1.9 billion plan to transform mental health services in schools. The Prime Minister also announced the appointment of the world's first Minister for Suicide Prevention. £1.8 million to allow the Samaritan's helpline to remain free for the next four years. Mental health specialists are to be trained to work in schools for the first time with the first intake to start by the end of next year and 8,000 to be recruited long term. Every school is to have a senior staff member responsible for mental health. The government will publish an annual State of the Nation report on child mental health from next year. Mrs May said we can end the stigma that's forced too many to suffer in silence. We can prevent the tragedy of suicide taking too many lives. See, this is what always happens. This is it. This is what you hear all the time. You've got this ludicrous idea that pandering to those who feel suicidal or feel depressed or extremely discontent with their life, that ending the stigma surrounding the issue and listening to them more is the answer. And I'm not saying don't listen, we should. Talking could be a great healer, but you can listen more to people saying they feel suicidal, but they still feel suicidal. Far more effective is to address the cause of the problem. We've got this virtue signaling about ending the stigma and that's as far as it goes. But if you address the cause or causes of the problem, there's no more stigma to end because the problem no longer exists. The quote goes on, and we can give mental well-being of our children the priority it so profoundly deserves. The article goes on. The new mental health assessments are to be made available to all schools as part of new classes on mental resilience, which will be part of the curriculum from 2020. Downing Street stressed that although the classes will be mandatory, it will be up to each school whether they use the assessments. But all teachers will be encouraged to use the tests in order to highlight any issues so they can better target their teaching. Officials envisage that most pupils will be assessed every year from the age of four. They expect the assessments to be in a similar form to the well-being surveys currently used by the Office of National Statistics to gauge the nation's mood adjusted for the age of the child. Those surveys ask people how happy they are out of 10, how they rate their satisfaction with life and how worthwhile they believe their daily activities are. If issues with particular children arise as a result of the assessment, it will be up to each teacher whether they flag it with parents, officials said. The assessments are a new element of a £1.9 billion plan to transform mental health services in schools, outlined in a green paper published by the government earlier this year. 
I wonder why they call them green papers. There's a reason for that. Anyway, the article goes on. Ministers expect the overall plan to bring savings of £6.4 billion by spotting mental illness much earlier in life. Health experts last night welcomed the announcement as a crucial step for the 1 in 10 under 16 is suffering from a mental health condition. But they pointed out there is a huge way to go until mental health is given the same priority as physical health. A report by the National Audit Office yesterday said the government is further away than it thought from achieving its goal of equal access to physical and mental health services for young people. The government aims 70,000 additional children and young people will receive treatment every year by 2020 or 2021. But the NAO said even if ministers deliver on their plans, they are unlikely to hit the target. A separate report published in the Lancet Medical Journal last night found mental health disorders will drain £12 trillion per year from the global economy by... Drum roll, please. 2030. Mrs May said there are few greater examples than the injustices facing those with mental health conditions, but together we can change that. Our record investment in the NHS will mean record investment in mental health. We are not looking after our health if we are not looking after our mental health. So we need true parity between physical and mental health, and not just in our health systems, but in our classrooms, workplaces and communities too. The article goes on. Health Secretary Matt Hancock, who yesterday hosted a mental health summit in London, attended by ministers from 50 countries and the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, said, We need to do more to challenge the stigma that people with mental ill health face and make sure they feel they can reach out for help. Well, instead of doing more, we're always told we need to do more when it's not us that's caused the problem in the first place, in many cases. Instead of doing more to tackle the stigma, how about, as I said just now, addressing the cause of the problem? Then there's no more stigma to tackle, because there's no more problem. Dr Mark Bush, Policy Director of the Young Minds Charity, said while there are still big questions to be asked on future funding for NHS children's mental health services, it's good news that the government is committing to further support for schools. The well-being of children should be every bit as important as academic performance, and schools need the tools and resources to make this a priority. Mental health support teams could make a real difference, though the programme needs to be expanded so that it reaches all schools and students. New State of the Nation reports and student wellbeing measures will help to provide robust evidence about which mental health initiatives are most effective. Only by having up-to-date insights about the experience of young people can we hope to address the current crisis, he says. The article goes on. A spokesman for the NSPTC added increasing mental health support and awareness in schools is an important step to ensure children who need help get it as soon as possible. <coughs> But we know children don't just experience mental health problems during the school day with two-thirds of contacts to childline about mental health issues coming outside school hours. Early intervention is vital to support young people before they reach this sort of crisis point. And there's a shorter piece here in this article. Theresa May appoints world's first minister for suicide prevention and bid to number of people taking their own lives. Theresa May has appointed the world's first minister for suicide prevention in a bid to cut the number of people taking their own lives. Health Minister Jackie Doyle-Price will lead the national effort and try to end the stigma. End the stigma. Here we go. We've got to see this is the thing. Yeah, you can come forward. Yeah, we're going to listen to you. We're going to take you more seriously. Tell me that you feel suicidal. Well, how does that address the cause of the problem? The problem's still there. All that's happening is people are being listened to more when they say they feel suicidal. But they still feel suicidal. The problem's still there, and the cause of the problem is still there, thus the problem's still there. I'm not saying don't listen, you know, listening is important. Yes, we should listen more and take it more seriously, yes, but that has to be followed up by addressing the cause of the problem. Around 4,500 people take their lives every year in England, and suicide remains the leading cause of death among men under the age of 45. Mrs Doyle, think about that, suicide the leading cause of death among the men under the age of 45, according to this article. 
this part of the article by Ben Spencer, medical correspondent. It's no wonder, though, is it, when you look at society? Mrs Doyle Price, whose title is now Minister for Mental Health, Inequalities and Suicide Prevention, said, I understand how tragic, devastating and long-lasting the effect of suicide can be on families and communities. Oh, do you? Well, that's a good start. Shouldn't that be a given? In my time as Health Minister, I have met many people who have been bereaved by suicide and their stories of pain and loss will stay with me for a long time. It's these people who need to be at the heart of what we do and I welcome this opportunity to work closely with them as well as experts to oversee a cross-government suicide prevention plan, making sure their views are always heard. Health Secretary Matt Hancock said, We're already making progress when it comes to suicide prevention. The suicide rate is at its lowest for seven years. But we need to do more to challenge the stigma that people with mental health face and make sure they can feel they can reach out for help. Well, I've said what I think about that line already. I'm delighted we are appointing Jackie Dora Price as I dedicate to Minister for Suicide Prevention. I know she will make a real difference. Every suicide is a preventable death and we are determined to do everything we can to tackle the tragedy of suicide. Mrs Doyle Price, 49, was elected MP for Thurrock in Essex in 2010 and given her first government job following the 2017 election as junior health minister. Originally from Sheffield, she sparked a row last year when she said many elderly people are sitting in homes that really are too big for their needs and should not expect to pass them on to their children. She had one of the smallest majorities in Parliament, just 92 votes when elected in 2010, but has since increased the margin to 351. Well, is it any wonder kids are to be given routine mental health checks? When you look at all the different sources of pressure on kids, it becomes very clear. You've got school where kids are increasingly in an authoritarian system. Not totally yet, by any means, but more and more it's going that way. I featured a story in episode 23, where kids are very harshly punished, to say the least. In America, it's incredible the punishments kids get in schools now. Not necessarily every school, but certain schools. Schools are becoming more and more like prisons nowadays, with far more surveillance than necessary, more than there used to be. How many times do people here in Britain hear about people going into a school and either posing a danger to children or a child or actually abusing a child. I never hear about it and yet we're told there needs to be all this surveillance in school because it's not there ultimately to protect children, it's there to create this surveilled totalitarian environment in which kids spend the vast majority of their developing years and I've said before that when you come into the world you tend to accept that what you see is how it is, this is just how life is this is how it's always been. Because you don't know any different. And unless your parents or someone else older than you points out that it didn't always used to be like this, then you're going to believe that it always has been like this. So you don't question it. You just accept it. This is one reason why the elite's agenda involves getting rid of parents and family, although there's other reasons as well. Scores of prisons preparing children for the bigger prison called human society. Then, when the kids go home, the pressure continues because the kids have homework. So they're not even free after school, they have to do homework or face the consequences in school the next day or whenever they next have the lesson relevant to the homework. Parents place far too much pressure on kids to do well in school and pass exams and the kids feel under pressure because they don't want to disappoint their parents by not getting good exam results. As if that's the only way to make a life for yourself. we got kids committing suicide now because they don't pass exams or they don't do as well in exams as they wanted to. You've got peer pressure, which you've always had, of course, but it's been taken to another level now with social media and technology. Because before, when you were at home or you were not around your mates, you had privacy, you had your own life. But now, with social media, 
You've got judgment of what you do and where you go and photos that you post. You've got kids being concerned about how many likes and clicks and comments they get. And it's creating a far more pressured environment in that way. It's pressure to conform, but it's taken to another level with social media, which in truth is anti-social media because it claims to be about connecting people and is actually a vehicle for division and hatred and censorship, self-censorship of people when you get the Twitter stormers who, when someone makes a comment on Twitter or elsewhere, people make a fuss about it on Twitter or tweet the person who said it with anger and either ludicrously intimidates the person into apologizing just for stating an opinion or tries to get their account suspended or tries to do this or that. So social media is a source of self-censorship and hatred and division and not holding back with comments. Not in terms of not holding back on your opinion on a certain subject, which is a good thing, but not holding back in terms of just spewing out rudeness and hatred and crude comments because you're behind a computer screen or a phone screen. Keyboard warriors, they call it. So social media is a source of massive pressure on kids and people in general come to that. What we've got is another means, among many others, of trying to find a solution to a problem rather than addressing and removing the cause of the problem and in the process removing the problem because the cause is no longer present. Instead of asking why it's happening and addressing the root causes, we have finding a solution. We can find a solution but the cause can still be present which means the problem can manifest again and again and again. To remove the problem entirely, you have to remove the cause, which usually takes a lot more effort than finding a solution, which is why most people find a solution. This happens on a personal level, in the way I'm describing, and it happens on a national, global level, with people choosing to put a cross in a box every four or five years, or however many years, rather than getting informed about how the world's really run, by whom and to what end, and addressing that, taking power back to where it came from originally, the people, and ourselves making an effort to make a change rather than looking to politics to change everything because it's easier to find a solution than it is to address the cause. This story here is just the expression of that mindset. And there's a statement here. The government aims 70,000 additional children and young people will receive treatment every year by 2020 or 2021. This is what we hear all the time. We're treating more people than ever before. Why? Why do so many people need treatment? Not just mental, but physical problems as well. The NHS is treating this problem or that problem or the other problem. More people than ever before. Why? Surely it's far better. Surely it's a far greater expression of success, reflection of success if less and less and less people are treated because they don't need treatment than it is for more people to be treated. Less is more, as they say. But you see, again, to answer that would take a massive reassessment of society and far greater change than just someone going to see a doctor. Finding a solution rather than removing the cause. You see, those in power are quite happy for us to try to find solutions because of two reasons. One, they know that the problem can still manifest again if you do that, as I've said, but also because to address the cause means to reassess perceptions, 
of whatever the problem relates to. And in this case, it means a fundamental reassessment of kids' lives and what in society could be causing them to feel the way they do. And they don't want that because that means people might start thinking differently about the problem or the problems even. So finding a solution suits those in power down to the ground because then the causes are not addressed. And I heard a great phrase once, which is the system, in other words, the collective establishment and authority, organizations, government, etc. The system should fit us, we should not fit the system. To phrase it another way, the system should have to fit us, we should not have to fit the system. We should not have to fit it, it should have to fit us. We have this backward society where the people are told they have to fit the system. Well, it's human society, isn't it? Therefore, it's made up of people. It should be a society that reflects the needs and the state of being of the people, not the other way around. But because we live in this inverted world where there's inversions everywhere you look, once you realize we live in an inverted society, you see inversions all over the place where everything's upside down, everything's the wrong way up to the way it should be. We've got inversions all over the bloody place. Everything's, well, not everything, but so many things in this world are the opposite of the way they should be. Because we live in an inverted world, then we have a society where the people have to adapt and fit the system instead of the system adapting and fitting to us and being shaped to fit us. This is what education is about as it's currently structured getting kids to be prepared for the workplace that's what we hear all the time we're preparing kids for the workplace what you're doing is preparing kids to fit the system instead of the system fitting kids and the population in general we should not have to do anything in this sense the system should be focusing on fitting us without us having to make it do that it should be custom made to fit us. And when you look at this choice of finding a solution to the problem rather than addressing the cause, as I've talked about, we, when you look at it, basically face a global version of that basic choice. Either we look to ourselves to address the problem and move the cause of the world and society changing increasingly in line with the elite's agenda and the changes in society people don't like, or we look to the system and government and authority which will introduce endless solutions in inverted commas to the problems it's caused which will be changes in society more of which people won't like more of which will cause people to feel discontent and depression and suicidal and which will take society down the road of the elite's agenda it's like that scene in the first matrix movie when Neo's in a car with Trinity and a couple of other people who were in the crew with Morpheus and others and Neo wants to get out of the car and he opens the car door and Trinity says that he should stay in the car because he's been down that road and he knows where it leads and she knows that's not where he wants to end up well humanity has been down the same road many times and it's not where the vast majority of them want to end up but we either face the problem now or address and remove the cause of the problem so the problem no longer manifests 
or we keep on trying to find solutions and saviors, in which case we'll continue being led down the road of the elite's agenda. It's just a choice. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.